You're listening to Sermons at High Peak. You know, in in, uh, recent years, it's been interesting to see the development of something. People using crystals for healing. Uh, This is kind of a new age spiritualist thing that has its roots in Eastern religions like Hinduism and others. And, and, uh, but take something like that that was meant to be spiritual and put it in America and it becomes big business. In 2017, the New York Times said that was the year of the greatest crystal boom. And in fact, people started making lots of money off of the belief that these spiritual crystals could somehow bring healing, both physical, spiritual, uh, maybe even emotional into your lives. So they started having these trade shows and folks would go around from show to show and they'd find the best crystals and you know, they'd talk about how effective is this crystal over that crystal and this stone over that stone. And you know, people would believe that they could use these things to extract negativity from their lives or to uh, infuse hope into their lives or bring them happiness, all from some rocks that were mined out of the ground. And that's the real problem about this. Because these rocks mined out of the ground, just because they look pretty, they're still rocks, they're pulled out of the ground, and most of them are pulled out of the ground by families. In fact, it was found in that article that these families on average make $1.90 a day that's not per person, that's per family. So if you got three, five, ten people, you're getting a dollar ninety per day. Most of us maybe wouldn't even pick up a dollar ninety off the floor sometimes. It feels like we, it, that's a ridiculously small amount of money. And what's worse is these folks are, are living in horrendous conditions. As a result, they're uh, getting lung cancer and other respiratory illnesses. In Madagascar alone, according to this article, 85,000 children work in these mines that can collapse or on sides of hills where there are landslides that can cover them up and they don't even bother to look for them or pull them out. When you think about that, all of these mostly wealthy people in this country who use these rocks, these crystals for spiritual healing and renewal I doubt many of them would send their eight-year-old into a mine in order to dig these things out at great peril and at great danger to their own lives just so that they can put it on their forehead or on their shoulder or on the backs of their hands and make them think that they're feeling better. However, we serve the rock. And he has chosen to sacrifice himself in order to bring real healing into our lives. And I want us to look at a passage today where he does just that. Look at John chapter 4. John chapter 4 has a story of healing that I think we can learn some lessons from and I want us to look at. Now, John is a great book and it's probably my favorite of the three Gospels. It's so well crafted. You know, all of the Bible is well crafted, but but John uh, basically has a beginning, chapter one, where he introduces Jesus in a very poetic kind of way. And then the rest of the chapter through until the 
resurrection, he has seven miracles. They call them the seven signs of the book of John. And that's essentially the outline of the book of John. He just gives you seven miracle stories. Now he gives little details in between these miracle stories in order to, uh, you know, move the, the narrative along. And so let's look at this. The, the first of those is in John chapter 2. Remember when he went to the city of Cana, the town of Cana, and he turned water into the wine? His mother came to him and said, they've run out of water or wine. And he says, what is this to do with me? And she says, just do what he tells you to. <laughs> and I could just see that picture, a mother telling her son what to do. And he is perfect. And so he obeyed his mother. And he did what she wanted him to do. And then he goes from there and... Uh, we don't have our second miracle until a couple of chapters later in this passage. In the interim, he travels from Jerusalem. He goes down to Jerusalem for Passover. He meets with Nicodemus. That's where we get the famous passage, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then he comes back north again to Galilee and he shows up in Cana again. The same place where he turned the water into wine. But not before he stops in Samaria. And what do you know about Samaria? Samaria is a place where the Jews never went. They didn't like the Samaritans. And the Samaritans didn't like them. There was conflict between the two that dated back hundreds of years uh, before this. And as a result, Jesus went in there. And he talked to a woman at a well. And he knew things about her that... He shouldn't have known. Not because it was sinful, but because it was miraculous. And so he stayed there for two days. And he had been there for two days talking to some people who desperately wanted to hear from him, who were excited about listening to his teaching, not asking necessarily for miracles. He may have performed some, we don't know. At least they're not recorded in John. But we do know this. We do know that after that he goes back to his home region. And it said, just before the passage we're going to look at, you know, Jesus had said, a prophet is without honor except in his own hometown. Is not without honor except in his own hometown. They didn't seem to accept him and believe him. And so we get there and we, he shows, uh, we show, uh, I'm sorry, we, we get to uh, verse 46 of John chapter 4 and we see this amazing miracle story that teaches us a lesson as every sign story Miracle story in the book of John has an important lesson about who Jesus is. So let's read it together. And if you have your copy of God's word open, please stand as we honor the God who gave us the word of God. John chapter 4, verses 46 through 54. It says, He went again to Cana, where he had turned water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. Now, Capernaum and Cana, they're about, oh, 20 or so miles apart. Today, that's a half-hour trip down the road to Hickory, but in that day, it was a day, maybe a day and a half-hour walk. Um, and when the man had heard that Jesus had come to Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. In verse 48, Jesus told him, Unless you people see signs and wonders... You will not believe. Sir, in verse 49, the official said to him, Come down. Heal my son before he dies. In verse 50, Go, Jesus told him. 
your son will live. By the way, that in the original language is probably more accurately, your son is living. The man believed what Jesus said to him and departed. While he was still going down, his servant met him, saying that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. And the father realized this was the very hour, or you might even translate, this is the very instant at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. You may be seated. And I was inspired to look at this passage as a group of us pastors were getting together and we were talking about this passage. One of the pastors in the area had recently preached it and shared it as kind of a devotion for us. And, and he went in kind of a different direction thinking about it. And, but as we were looking at that, there's something that he said that stood out at me that drew me into this passage and it, I couldn't get it out of my mind last week. And so this week I, I decided that's what we want to look at today. He said this, he said, when was the last time you pleaded with God for anything? Now think about that for a second. Sometimes we get into trouble. Our, our life spins out of control. Something terrible happens. There's a tragedy or some really bad news that we get. You know, either from a family member, or a doctor or at work or something. Uh, the news on television bothers us and we start praying for it. In those instances, maybe we do plead with God. I can tell you that there have been times in my life where I have pleaded with God. I have begged him. I have implored him. I don't know how many different synonyms I can use to say I have absolutely called out to the Lord with great desire and hope. God, meet this need that I have. And some of you have probably done that, if not all of us have done that. But how often do we really pray like that? Is it just when we're in those crises? But it makes me think about where we get to, and maybe that's part of the reason God lets us get into those situations, to draw us in. But as we think about this, I want you to understand this. Jesus is someone special. He's someone very unique, very different from anyone else. And we can plead to him. We can cry out to him at any moment, at any time and say, Jesus, please come meet my needs. And he wants us to do that. He longs for us to get into that position, not because he's you know, weak and, and emotionally unstable and he has some kind of codependency where he needs people to love him and want him. No, he doesn't need anything from us, but he loves us and wants us a close personal relationship with us and he knows what is best and will work. And many times he puts us in situations where we need to plead, where we need to cry out. That's what this official did. This official pleaded with him to come. Uh, Jesus had gone back to this town. He had turned water into wine. I'm sure word got out very quickly. I don't know if he did that thing behind the scenes. I've, I sort of have that image that, that it wasn't something that everyone saw, but there's one group of people who absolutely saw it, and those were his disciples that were with him at the wedding. 
and his mother who was there as well. And probably the folks hosting that wedding and anyone else helping put on that wedding. You know, putting on a wedding, it's pretty simple and easy, isn't it, Ravonda? You know, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort or time. No, just months and maybe even years for some people. In case you don't know, her daughter just got married, not yesterday, but last week. And the fact is, it takes a lot of effort. And those folks were beside themselves, I'm sure. Because if you don't have enough wine at the wedding, you're going to be the laughing stock. At least that was in their culture, maybe not in ours. But Jesus did that. And then he went down for Passover to Jerusalem, where he talked to Nicodemus, where he shared with him. He said two of the most famous things he's ever said. You must be born again. And God so loves the world. He gave his only begotten son. And then he returned home and he comes here and on his way he meets with this woman in Samaria. And when you think about this, look at who Jesus has met with just in the last two or three chapters here. He has met with one of the most important religious leaders in Jerusalem, Nicodemus. He was high up. He was an important man. Then he met with a Samaritan woman who was probably at the very least, was a very loose woman, at the very worst, maybe even a prostitute. And he met with her and talked to her. And that was scandalous. And then now he's going to have this Roman official show up and begin to talk to him. A Roman official, a woman of ill repute, and a man who's probably very high in repute or estimation of the people. Jesus will meet with anyone. And that's important for you and I because it doesn't matter where you're at in your life, he'll talk to you and he'll listen to you. You can come to him and plead with him about and for anything. Anything. You may have cancer or you can't find the keys to your car. He'll listen and he's there for you. And what does he do in this situation? The man didn't send for Jesus. He was a high up official. The term that they use is a Greek term, basilikos. What does that mean? It, it just means a Roman official. We could, he could have either been a member of the royal household or the royal family. Most likely he was a, 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 an official who had been hired by him. Maybe he was a long line of important officials. We don't fully know what kind of an official he was, but as an official, he would have had lots of people working under him. He could have sent for Jesus. I want one of you men, you go on off there to Cana and get this Jesus I've heard so much about. I heard he can turn water into wine. I've heard he's done other miracles. Go get him and bring him back to me. Now he didn't do that. It's almost as if someone came to him. I could just see it. One of his servants came to him and said, Sir, that Jesus that I told you about, he's back. He's, he's just over in Cana. He's just a, about a day and a half away. And it's almost like he just jumped off the, the throne or the, the office uh, uh, seat that he was in and just ran out the door and down the road because he ran to see Jesus. I don't know if it was that quick, but probably as quick as he could go because he knew that his son is at home dying. Or maybe it was at his bedside, his son's bedside, and that servant came into the room where the poor fellow was laying there, the poor kid or the poor young man was laying there near death and said, that Jesus, he, he's here. And he just jumps up and runs or at least prepares very quickly to go. 
And in verse 47, it says, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. And then Jesus responded in a very strange way. The very next verse, look at it. Right there in verse 48, what does Jesus say? He says, you won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. Essentially, that's what he said. You won't believe unless I do magic tricks. He had just been in, in uh, Samaria for two days, and they couldn't get enough of him. I can imagine him leaving, them uh, probably just clinging to him. Don't go, don't go, please stay. No, I have an important appointment with a Roman official in Cana. He maybe didn't say that, but he probably knew that. And he left. And when he arrives, what does he find? They're not excited to see him. Some of them maybe aren't even uh, impressed with him because as Jesus himself has said, uh, a prophet is without honor except in his own hometown. And this is his home area. Why did he say that? Because it seems like a lot of these folks are welcoming him. Probably because he's comparing it to where he has just been. And they're welcome. Their welcome was sincere. They wanted to learn from him. These folks' welcome was selfish. They wanted to get something from him. But this man came in faith. Why did he say it to this man? Why did he say it here in this moment? You know, we've seen this elsewhere. Jesus in Matthew 15, a woman comes, wants to, be, uh, to have Jesus heal her, her daughter. And uh, she was ill, so the, so the woman begged for Jesus to come and heal her. He said, well, I've been sent to the lost sheep of Israel because she was a Gentile. She wasn't a Jew. And he said, it wouldn't be good to take food from the table to give to the dogs. Now, that's kind of harsh. I remember in my seventh grade Bible class at Heritage Christian School, Tim Moore, my teacher, said, uh, today we're going to look at a passage where Jesus called a woman a dog. And we all were scandalized. There's no way Jesus would ever call a woman a dog. And then he did his devotion from this passage. And that's essentially what he does here, isn't it? In that, in that passage in Matthew 15 when he says, uh, we shouldn't take food from the children's table and feed it to the dogs. You Gentiles are dogs, he says. But she said, you know, even the dogs get crumbs from the table. And Jesus was so amazed by her wonderful faith, he said, she's healed. Because she didn't care what he said or what he did. She just wanted him to meet her need. And this Roman official was just that desperate and he pleaded in the same kind of way. And I think, you know, Jesus, uh, you, you know, probably could have seen that this man you know, yelled at him and, and called him names if he wanted to. But he was just so impressed by him. He was so amazed by him. And instead of treating him that way, he met his need. So let me ask you this. Are you desperate for Jesus to meet your needs? Are you desperate? Do you long for it and hope for it? Do you cry out to it? I don't care what the need is. When you are, you'll almost do anything to meet that need. A Gentile official turns to a Jewish rabbi who lives 20 miles away and comes to him begging. A woman attends a rally at a convention and has a TV preacher try to heal her. 
She's desperate. She'll do anything. A non-believer sometimes reaches out to a Christian at work and say, will you pray for my friend or my mother or my son who's sick? They'll do almost anything. Even though I don't believe, you do. So will you pray? We've experienced that from Barb's family. As uh, some of them have, have called out to us and said, will you pray? Even though they themselves don't believe. A mom gets some Eastern mysticism stones and, and puts them all over her child, hoping that that'll bring healing. You know, we'll do anything when we get desperate enough. And in this case, this man was willing to do anything. And so he called out to Jesus. And he called out to Jesus in three different ways. When you look at it, it sounds like it's just one thing he says. But if you analyze it, there's really three different ideas that we get from this, three really lessons that we get from this. And the first lesson is this. We can cry out to Jesus and say, come please heal us by your power. You know, some people need literal physical healing. And we get desperate. We cry out to Jesus, please heal me by your power. You can do that. The Bible even instructs us to do that. In the book of James, it says, uh, go and present yourself uh, to the leaders of the church. Have them anoint you. And maybe that's what needs to be done. Cry out to him for healing. Now, this Roman official, this Basilikos, he had two assumptions about Jesus that I want us to examine a minute. The first one is he assumed Jesus could heal. He wouldn't have left his son, his dying son, that knowing that, look, if, if I don't get there in time, he could be dead before I get back. Or if this man doesn't do what I ask him to do, then he could be dead before I get back. That's seemingly how bad off he was. But he assumed Jesus could heal him and that he might heal him too. I don't know how certain he was. I don't know how strong his faith he was, but I know that he was desperate and pleaded and he left home and went and asked Jesus. This official, he, he listened to his servants. Yes, let's go. He's there, let's go. And his thoughts immediately went to his son when he heard Jesus was around. A lot of us are like that. The minute you hear of a possible hope, you immediately think of the greatest needs that you have and you go to it. Um, but understand this, Jesus can heal. Just because he's not physically on this earth anymore, there is still healing. We know that just from the testimony of members of our own church, there has been healing. We've seen people say, yes, I've been healed. And we could count those uh, names. If I asked you to, to list them and we had a little bit of a, a praise the Lord time, we'd have a number of them a number of you who would stand up and say, yes, I've experienced it or I've seen it in this person's life. But this man knew Jesus could heal. But there's something else that we understand that he assumed. Look at verse 47. It says, when this man heard that Jesus, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son since he was about to die. Jesus told him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Sir, the official said, come before he dies. You see, he knew that Jesus could heal, but he also had another assumption that wasn't quite right. He assumed Jesus had to be present to heal his son. He thought his, his uh, son had to be within 
distance of Jesus. He thought Jesus had to be able to speak directly to him or even touch him maybe to heal him. In fact, he said it twice. He said, come down in the first request. And when Jesus kind of uh, tests his faith, he says it again, come down before he dies. And you can just hear the tone of that man. He's not angry in this instant, I don't think. He's just desperate and longing. Come before he dies. It's almost as if he's saying, I don't know what you're talking about, this stuff about uh, prophets and, and you know, seeing signs. I don't know about all that. I just know my son's dying and I know that you can heal him. So will you come? Because he assumed the man, Jesus, had to be present for it to take place. You know, I think about people who limit God. You know, we think he can do great things, but we think he has to do them the way we imagine them being done. Have you ever prayed that way? Lord, I need your help, but here's how I need you to do it for me. And we limit him. It's like we've got the plan. He's not smart enough to come up with it or maybe doesn't have the time. And so, Lord, here's my plan. I've got a detailed seven-pointer here. Just do it like this and I'll get it all. And God doesn't always work that way, does he? In fact, when I come to him with that attitude, it's almost certain he's going to look at that plan and go, we're not going, going down that road because I want you to learn something. That I am God, you are not. Because later on, you need to know that. And right now, you need to know that. Have you ever been there? Where God didn't work the way you wanted him to work? Often, the results are far better than we could ever imagine. The Bible even teaches us that. He's got plans that are far bigger and better than even we can understand or imagine. But we limit Jesus. I know how to do it. I know how to make it happen. Do it like this, Jesus. And he says, no, no, that's not the way we're going to do this. And in this man's life, he didn't meet his request. His request was, come and heal my son. But Jesus didn't come, but he still healed his son. You know, there's another pair of women who had a similar kind of request of Jesus. Remember the story of Lazarus? His sisters, Mary and Martha, were beside themselves because Lazarus was also on his deathbed. And they sent word for Jesus. He's a good friend of the family. Lazarus is one of his closest friends. Certainly he will come when he finds out. But they sent word, and on the day that they sent word, Jesus said, yeah, maybe, we'll, we'll think about that. Not literally, but... And it was three days later that he showed up and Lazarus was already dead. But you remember how that story ended? Jesus went to his tomb and said, Lazarus, come forth. And he did. You see, those women assumed that Jesus would do it this way, but Jesus did it another way, and that other way brought far more glory and was much better for the kingdom of God because more people believed as a result. More people's lives were changed. More people were saved. And Lazarus had a really great story to tell at parties. <laughs> what I mean by that is Lazarus had a witness beyond witnesses. I was once dead, but now I'm alive. A man, a man for sure, amazing. But why would Jesus let people suffer? Because he knows that in our suffering, good things can happen. And if we put our trust and faith in him in our suffering, good things will happen. He will be glorified and honored. 
we will learn lessons. People will see the work of God in our lives and honor the Lord, or at least be challenged and invited to do so. But the most important is that we can learn that Jesus is not limited by time, space, or our understanding. This man didn't know that, but he learned it, didn't he? He learned that Jesus did not have to be present. He could heal from 20 miles away, and you know what? He can heal from even further away today because he can do it. His first assumption was right. His second one was wrong, and thank God because Jesus is far more powerful. And that leads us to our third understanding, that this man didn't verbalize, but he experienced. And that is the prayer that when we get desperate, we can pray out, Jesus, transform our faith. Change my faith. Change my belief. Change my understanding of you and how this world exists and works. Change it all. Give me a brand new perspective as I meet you and understand who you are. One of the reasons this story makes us so amazed and hopeful is that Jesus didn't just heal his son, but he changed his faith. Jesus told him, go on, your son lives. As I said to you when I read through it, most, a lot of the translations, not all of them, but some of them say, will live. But the tense of that verb in the original language says he is living. In other words, he's not dead right now. He is living. And he's going to continue on living. I'm not going to promise you he'll live forever, but right now, this boy that you thought was dead and maybe even feared would be dead before you got here, is alive and he's going to go on living and it says in verse 50 the man believed what Jesus said now that is the first time that we hear about belief but then this man experiences something a little bit more amazing as he goes on home first of all would you have left would you have had the faith to leave that guy's got the power I need to be by him and I need to bring him but he believed. And so he left and he went on his way home. And remember, it was about 20 miles. And so he's probably traveled at least half a day before these servants show up coming the other direction half a day. And they arrive and they say, your son, he's alive. He's been healed. He's no longer sick. And he said, what are you talking about? Are you serious? Yes, we're serious. When did it happen? And they said, Literally, they said it was on the seventh hour. Now, that could be one of two things. In the translation we read, which I think is most likely the truth, the six, uh, 6 a.m. is the beginning of a Jew's day. That's the way they counted it. Didn't matter what the sun was like. It was 6 a.m. That's about when the day began. And so they'd count the hours from then. And so the seventh hour would be 1 p.m., which is what the Christian Standard Bible says. Now, it's possible that they could have gone by Roman reckoning. If he's a basilikos, a Roman official, so it could have been at 7 p.m. because they started at noon. That really doesn't matter. But what matters is this, that the very moment that the, the man Jesus said he is living is the very moment that his son started to get better. <laughs> Jesus transformed his faith because he said in that moment, Look at verse 53. The father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus told him, your son is living, or will live is what the translation says. So he himself believed, and then look what it says, along with his whole household. I like that. 
I think that's a wonderful thing because that shows us a father whose faith was transformed and as a result, his family's faith was transformed. But you know, the household in that day, if he was a servant who had servants, I mean, if he was an official who had lots of servants, it probably wasn't just his wife and kids. It probably was his servants, the men who worked there and the women who uh, cleaned the, the house or whoever it was that worked in his household. They all believed. Why? Because they saw the power of Jesus' work in their life. I can only imagine what that must have been like. You know, he's been traveling for half a day. He meets the servants on the way coming towards him. He's alive. When did it happen? At 1 p.m. That's incredible. That's exactly when Jesus said it, he would be okay. Let's go. And they probably ran home even faster. He's tired. Imagine, he's already been traveling for probably three days, at least two and a half days at this point. One and a half to get there, a half a day to get back. So it's at least two days travel. Did he sleep overnight? I kind of doubt it. He was desperate. And so I'm sure at this point, though, the tired feeling, the, the exhaustion he felt was probably nothing. Would it be for you? Would you say, I think I'll take a nap now? No, you'd be so excited. You'd beeline for the house. And you run, and he goes that, that the rest of the day's journey, another probably six to eight-hour walk. And as he gets there, he arrives. And I'm sure he probably ran in. And there his son would be maybe sitting up in bed, probably complaining because he feels fine, but mom won't let him get up, you know. He wants to take a bath and go out and do something. If he's small, play with his friends. If he's a, an adult, go back to the work that he maybe used to do for his father. And there he is, and everyone's kind of crowded around him, just amazed. And I bet he first went to his son, gave him a hug. And his son's probably going, what's going on? What, what, what's going on, Dad? Maybe he didn't fully realize how bad off he was. Maybe he did, I don't know. I'm just imagining what it would be like if I was in those shoes or those sandals. And as he begins to tell the story, maybe beginning from the moment he left, talking about that incredibly agonizing, painful journey Barb and I have told you about when we got the news that Daniel's lung had collapsed and he was in the hospital in Greenville, South Carolina. And so late at night into the middle of the night, we're driving from here down to Greenville, going through the back roads of, you know, western North Carolina into South Carolina. And I'm telling you, that was a painful drive because we didn't know what he was going to be like or how bad off he was. We just left. And we were crying and worried and holding hands half the way and, you know, just didn't know what we were going to get to. Now, when we arrived, he had already gotten the pain medications. And so he was quite himself, not himself. He was someone very different, acting kind of strange and flirting with the nurses and stuff. But then the next day, when things were going better and then suddenly they went a lot worse all of a sudden. And he had to have emergency surgery. The pain that we experienced, the fear and the worry during those few hours as we waited to see how well it went. Thankfully, you prayed and others prayed from very far away, by the way. And the Lord brought healing into his life through non-miraculous means, but through wonderful means. Now, there were a lot of miraculous things that happened before that, things that were coincidences, which I define as God manipulating circumstances for his glory and our benefit. But you know, God worked. And we were amazed and our faith was built. And this man probably telling that story to his family and having all of them listen and hear 
And they said, we believe. Maybe one by one, maybe all of them at once. This Jesus is someone different, isn't he? He's someone unique and special. He's unlike anyone who we've ever heard of before. And they didn't even physically meet him, but they believed in him because they saw what he can do. Because of the testimony of the father and the results in the life of the son. I want you to know, God can transform your faith. You see, a lot of us are praying for physical changes, maybe a physical healing for a lot of you and your family members and our church members and, and people we love and care about. You know, when we gather on Wednesday nights and pray, we have a long list of people praying. If you're not coming together and praying with us on Wednesday nights, we miss you. We'd love to have you there. It's a great time of prayer and love for people and one another. And as we pray in you and your Sunday school classes, there's a lot of people. And he can heal. He might use a doctor. He might use some treatment or a medicine. But you know, he might also use a miracle. And we've even seen that. But there's something that sometimes happens when we're praying for something a physical healing, a circumstance healing in our life. And God says no. He said, that's not my plan for this situation. It's in those moments that our faith is <laughs> most challenged and maybe won't hold up. And I know some of you might be there as I think about the pain that you're feeling. My prayer is that God will transform your faith. That you can believe that Jesus knows best. That he has a plan for you, a wonderful plan that will work out for his glory to build your faith, to transform your circumstances into something that he can use in your life and the life of other people. Jesus prayed, let this cup pass for me, and God said no. And every one of us has to say we're awful thankful he did. Are you willing to submit to him, even if those are your circumstances? Even if he says no. You've been listening to Sermons at High Peak. I'm Dr. Kevin Purcell, pastor of High Peak Baptist Church. Thanks for joining us. If you heard something that inspired you, challenged you, or encouraged you, please let me know. You can reach me at pastor at highpeakchurch.com. We're also on Facebook at High Peak Church. Thanks for listening.